<laughs> Sometimes, you know, you just got to make sure things are groomed correctly, right, Keith? Uh, yeah. Why you always bring me in? Why can't you bring Elliot in? <laughs> well, you have the f- big beard. Oh, for God's sakes. The I'm first shaving. read we had focused on Elliot and, you know, he still hasn't shaved. His hair is uh-huh. a mess. Uh-huh. So, but I'm trusting is manscaping is not for your hair. Or your, I'm trusting or your though that you're using the lawnmower 3.0, right? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And you love it. I love it. I love so, it. Andy, you Wouldn't know, you got to get in on this because we can offer you and our listeners 20% off. That is very exciting. Yeah. I mean, have you heard about this thing? It is on the cutting edge of technology. Pun intended. Both pun intended and unintended. Waterproof technology allows you to groom in the shower. How about that? It's got an LED light, which illuminates grooming areas for a closer and more precise trimming. Because you don't want to miss a section. No, you need light. <laughs> you need light. In the darkest when you go, Listen, I've always said when you go in the Amazon, make sure to bring a light. Yes. <laughs> so that's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. And make sure to use the code DOING20. So Andy, go ahead and make that purchase, Lawnmower 3.0, or anybody you know. They can get 20% off, and their balls will thank all of us. <laughs> How about is that this, for a read? Is this really the read right now? We need to be doing that. A podcast that combines sports, social media content, and life. Though we make no promises, we'll stick to those topics each episode. I'm Jonah Ballo. I'm Keith Steckler. And on this podcast, we'll often focus on the sports content and creative we see and like and share between the three of us. We need to be doing that. I'm Elliot Gerard. These are the discussions we have most days in person or group text, now with the microphones on and recording. We've known each other since 2009. We have experience in ad agencies and marketing, digital content across teams in the NBA, and creative for brands, teams, and athletes. Come on. We need to be doing that. On the podcast, we welcome a guy I've known for a while, one of the good guys who I definitely take dad notes from. He spent his career in the music industry. He's been at Spin. He's been at The Source. And for 16 years, he was president at The Fader. Andy Cohn, welcome, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Keith. It's nice to uh, be with you guys. You are not that Andy Cohen from Bravo. You nope. get that a lot? I get tweeted at multiple times a day about housewives, and I uh, it find it extremely frustrating. So I really uh, don't use Twitter that often anymore. I would just respond with outlandish shit that has nothing to do with the show and just act as if you are yeah. Andy Cohen. Well, when he had a baby, I did accept a lot of congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> I thanked everybody, you know. I went, I went with it. There's a fighter, John Jones, in the UFC, and there's a Twitter handle with a guy with the same spelling, same name, and people come after him after every fight and after he does something bad. The guy's been, you know, he's got a DUI, he's gotten in many legal issues, and it's pretty funny because he just responds to him as if he is John Jones, the MMA fighter. Yeah, that's basically – I did it for entertainment for a while. <laughs> come on, man. You can have fun with this. He he did once tweet telling people to leave me alone. Oh. Oh, Nice. So he cares. He does care. I've met him a couple of times. Nice, nice guy. Where did you grow up and what did your parents do? So I grew up on the South Shore of Long Island in a town called East Rockaway. Um, my father was a newspaper uh, writer and editor for Newsday for 46 years. 
if you can imagine being at one job for that long. Wow. Uh, he was an entertainment reporter, did some sports reporting, and um, you know spent his entire career there. And my mother was a uh, kindergarten teacher, elementary school, and then kindergarten teacher up until a few years ago. And she, they are both now retired. I mean, most marriages don't last that long. No, they don't. But it did inspire me to get, you know, into journalism. And, you know, I went to ended up going to Indiana University for journalism. And I was, uh, you know, the recipient of the first copy of Spin magazine in 1985 that my father brought home from work and I was in fifth grade. So I kind of uh, it had Madonna on the cover and I just kind of dug into it. And really got interested in reading about artists. I, I was starting to get into music, you know, around fifth and sixth grade. And uh, and I think because of my father's job and, you know, um, li- living in more of like a, a literary kind of English family, um, you know, I really got interested in reading about artists. So it kind of planted an early seed for me. Um, you know, it was, it was more interesting to go deeper than just listening to the music on the radio. I always like to know about the people behind the music. So um, I was lucky that my dad would get comp copies of, you know, early issues of spin and, and then Rolling Stone and and vibe magazine when it launched as well. Um, So those really inspired me to kind of pursue a a future in in journalism or at least something along the lines of, of music. I couldn't play any instruments. So uh, I figured, you know, I wanted to be involved in music somehow and thought that would be a a good Avenue. I wanted to be the almost famous kid. What a great movie. I wanted to ride on buses with rock stars. And did you? Um, I did. I got to do that a little bit in college. I wrote I wrote all through college for the student newspaper and for a local newspaper in Bloomington, Indiana. So I did a lot of concert reviews. And and to sound super old and antiquated, I did CD reviews. Oh man! Um, for the for the for the local local paper and and for the for the Indiana Daily Student. Um, so I, I did get to uh, interview a lot of artists when they came through town and played the local club gigs. And, you know, I got to uh, spend a lot of time backstage, you know, doing, you know, learning the environment and, uh, you know, learning how to interview, you know, somewhat famous people, um, marginally famous people, I guess, that came through Bloomington, Indiana. Do you find music to be less interesting now than ever? Um, I find so it's a really interesting question. I I find music not only it's not that it's less interesting, it's that there's too much of it. You know, music has become so accessible for everyone to make music. Like any four of us right now could have at the fingertips, the ability to produce professional style, sound, audio, buy a beat off of a site, you know, rap over it, sing over it. And next thing you know, it's on SoundCloud or TikTok, you know, and it could go somewhere. So the barrier to entry, you know, to become a musician is so much different than when, you know, I'm going to venture to say when we were all growing up without asking ages, but, you know, you had to have access to money and a studio and you had to studio and you had to really have talent and you, you had to have access to the equipment, like real recording equipment. You know, you, there were there was no internet, there were no websites, there was no software that was you know that that would enable you to create music. And I think to answer the the core question, it's it's really that music has become so um, saturated. You know, if you look at Spotify, 
and YouTube and all of the DSPs, there's, you know, 8 million trillion artists, you know, and there's so many that are so similar in every different genre that it's really hard to, to break through that clutter. And I find through both algorithms and human curation, you know, it's still hard to really find stuff that, that you're into. I think they do a pretty good job of leading you, you know, down a path. If you're a Bonavere fan or if you're a fan of, you know, Kendrick Lamar um, or both, you know, I think the algorithms do a pretty good job pointing you in the right direction. But, you know, those, they're also, they're part algorithms and part, you know, man made and curated, you know, um, and who knows how that gets done. We know how it happens at radio stations, which is, you know, uh, takes a lot of money and you need to really be on a major label, you know, to get spins on, you know, mainstream terrestrial radio. But, um, you know, it's a, it's kind of a, it's a mystifying place, the DSPs. You know, my question was vague in terms of music less interesting. And I, and I ask you that because one of my favorite documentaries is the defiant ones and watching Jimmy Iovine and, and what he did over the course of his career and how incredible the personalities were, him as a personality, as an individual, and even watching artists and who they were and getting to know them, the backstories and kind of even rumors, what you didn't know or what you thought you knew about them. And that's what kind of made it sort of a romantic, interesting place or a genre to follow. And I just wonder if the personalities now are as interesting or if the storylines to you, somebody who's covered it for so long, has that sort of changed over the years? And, and maybe it's the same answer that you, you just had, but it, from a personality standpoint from the artists. No, I think what's really interesting is that I do believe still in human curation when it comes to the storytelling and the narratives around artists because of the amount of artists that are out there. I think it really takes some, some, someone special uh, both as a per, it has to be like the perfect combination of like the personality, the backstory, and the actual music being good. Like at the end of the day, like the music has to be great, like not good. It has to be great, right? To cut through any kind of clutter. Then you have to add the personality of the artist, you know, as a component, right? It's not to say that they need to be the most dynamic human beings in the world, but, you know, having interesting backstories, um, you know, definitely enhances the experience and the interest in artists that when you have this sea of artists, the ones that bubble up, you know, are like the artists, like, you know, like a Bad Bunny, um, Rosalia, artists like Kendrick Lamar, like people who are really doing things that are, you know, extremely meaningful, that are writing lyrics that have, you know, real content. They really have something to say, no matter what the genre is. Um, I think that's that's a way that really uh, you know covering artists and and seeing artists break, especially in the in the time that I was at Fader where we were really focused on emerging music. Always, you know, I got to see that trajectory. You know, artists early in their career, you know, handing out CDs, finding a way to get into our office and literally distribute like by hand. Travis Scott would walk around our office handing us like demo CDs. You know, trying to get listen to him we didn't even know how he would get in the office sometimes you know so i think it's there's a lot that goes into really standing out in music these days is there any genres that you think are blossoming or you know or is it kind of across the board i think i think what's blo i i think hip-hop has really plateaued 
because of, I think hip hop has suffered from the most saturation of any genre. Mm-hmm. I think hip hop is you, you look at SoundCloud and again, my, my kind of example before of the immediacy of being able to become a rapper right now, you know, and I don't say that flippantly. I mean it, you know, you can literally write lyrics, buy a beat, go on SoundCloud and have a song that could take off overnight, you know, and then the next thing you know, you're little baby or you're, you know, one of a lot of artists. Like there is a big, you know, kind of swath of these young rappers that, you know, I I would say some of them and not to to disrespect them but some of them have not put in like time they don't really pay too much attention to the lyrical lyrical skills and and the way that they write music they regurgitate you know a lot of stuff and it's just not interesting like rap used to be my number one favorite genre you know and when you had artists like from Biggie Nas and Tupac all the way up through to like you know Kendrick Lamar and people like Vince Staples like artists that had really interesting things to say and that told stories, you know, with their music um, versus just, you know, the, the Takashi six nines and people screaming into a microphone, you know, misogynistic lyrics, like being just, you know, somehow just readily accepted. Um, I think that it's just, it's, it's an overdose in that genre. I think, to answer your question about genres that are succeeding, I think you've really seen a globalization of music and you now look at artists like Rosalia and Bad Bunny and Jay Balvin and artists that, you know, maybe five, six years ago would have trouble crossing over into North America, you know, from like lat whether they're Latinx artists, um, artists like Stormzy, you know, from London in the grime genre. You know, you now see a lot of these artists having a lot more success because of, again, DSPs, the internet, accessibility to music. Um, It's at everyone's fingertips to really discover music. I mean, you know, again, growing up, I had to go into a record store. You know, I had to ask an uncle, you know, about things like I had to be intimidated by a record store clerk to even ask a question. And, you know, if I heard someone talking about dance hall, I would not know where to go to find out, like, what was I going to go to the encyclopedia? You know, like there was no way of like, whereas, you know, in the, in the late nineties and and early two thousands and you had LimeWire and Napster, you know, you were able to hear someone say, talk about Tego Calderon and Beanie Man and someone, maybe one of your friends who's really progressive with music talking about dance hall when you're out at a bar having a drink, you could go home and listen to dance hall within five seconds and you can become a fan of it. And you can learn who Tego Calderon is and daddy Yankee. And you know, who you can really have that, that accessibility, you know, is, is the blessing of the internet. It's like the blessing and the curse, you know, like there's so many great things to the accessibility of the internet's given music on a global scale. And there's so many things that have just overloaded, you know, the population. This episode's really an intervention to not revisit your rap career, Elliot. That's really what this is all about. Exactly. Yeah. Talk about ruining the the music genre and (laughs) taking down an entire industry. Elliot's what? One year rap career. No, it was more than one year. 
Hey, I, there was a documentary about me that won awards, so I, I wouldn't say that I uh, had no career. All right, so there you go. There you go. Meanwhile, I've been dissing him the entire time, not knowing. So. Yeah, that's what I wanted. I am not. I am not. I don't take it up personally. <laughs> yeah, no. I know. I know. I know a lot of people that have have given it a go. Yeah. <laughs> Is it still true that really the only? Not the only one of the strongest ways an artist can make money is touring. And if that's true, how are these artists going to ride out COVID? Um, yeah. What do you see? I think it's one of the toughest situations that's ever presented itself, you know, to just arts and culture in general, you know. And when you talk specifically about music, I believe the number is, you know, art, most, the bulk of artists make over 90, 95% of their revenue from touring and live shows and gigs. You know, there's, ancillary revenue like sinks which are you know very hard to come by hit or miss um you know apple could call you one day and tell you they love your random song and you can get a great sync on an apple watch commercial you know you could try to pitch your music for sinks and that usually doesn't you know go so far unless it really connects um you know uh in a very specific way you have brand dollars, you know, which have supported artists over the years. Um, you know, a lot of those brand dollars, unfortunately, go towards the top tier artists. And those artists are like the Billie Eilishes and the Khalids and the Drakes of the world. You know, they're the ones not suffering from the lack of gigs because their numbers are so big on streaming platforms. Like they're getting massive checks, right? They're also getting first looks from the Pepsis and the Cokes of the world, you know, for massive deals, um, you know, endorsement deals. And, you know, one thing that I focused on, you know, my whole career is really trying to support, you know, these artists before they became big and, and try to like kind of leverage brand dollars and bring that to them as a way to, you know, help jumpstart their career, both through getting them visibility through Fader and our platforms, through the brand and the brand channels you know, through the PR around those integrated campaigns. Um, but I think now, you know, with COVID, you really see like everything else that's going on in the country, you know, you see such um, a disparate, you know, look at the world where, you know, everyone underneath those few artists that I talked about, you know, are really struggling. You know, they're trying to test things like live streaming, pay-per-view live streaming, um, you know, the company that I'm working with right now, you know, first tube media, which is a live streaming platform is trying to bring brand dollars, you know, to artists that are not only at the higher end of the tier, but also mid tier and emerging tier. And I think, you know, it's a way of really supporting those artists during a time where, you know, their revenue is extremely flat. A lot of them are just, it's, it's not flat. It's zero. You know, a lot of them are spending time in the studio, recording, trying to wait it out. There's been some drive-through concerts that everybody's seen. You know, there, there's definitely been some spark of innovation, but it's not made up for, you know, the lack of touring and, you know, the cancellations of major festivals and from the smallest gigs to the largest gigs. You know, I was talking to a producer in Atlanta who has a big event space in the backyard of a studio. And doing performances there was a huge part of the culture of their studio. And, you know, they've lost that, you know, and, and it's a, it was a big community 
kind of come together, check out emerging music, you know, on a, on a really nice stage and in a really beautiful setting. Um, you know, and that's just been, been really lost over the past, you know, year, over the past eight months. Do you, do you think that it's gonna come back quickly when it comes back or is it, this is, I mean, no one fucking knows, but I'm, I'm trying to think like in terms of like these concerts and stuff, like once there's a vaccine and people feel more comfortable, how quickly or you think it's going to take years? I mean, I personally think that that 2021 is highly in question. Um, you know, I'd like to think that by the second half of the year, uh, you know, you'll see some movement. Um, you know, I've also, you know, I read about this stuff every day and I and there are people much smarter than me. Um, I know Mark Geiger, who was head of music at William Morris, who recently left, you know, doesn't feel like, you know, we'll have a, a return to any kind of, you know, pre-COVID music normalcy until 2022. Um, you know, I know that there's a lot of festivals that pushed until uh, early summer, spring of next year, and now are moving those dates to September, October, you know, to the second half of 2021. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think once it comes back, you're going to have people who are still going to be hesitant, you know, to go out into big crowds. That's just, I think, human nature. Um, and I think you're going to have also another side of the spectrum of people. I mean, just look at how divided the country is. You're going to have people who Ted Nugent's playing live in Wisconsin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you're going to have people piling on top of each other to go see a show like that, you know going to Brooklyn Bowl, you know, in New York, or, you know, going to, you know, um, you know, Stubbs in Austin, it's going to be a different situation, you know, and, and you're gonna, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out, you know, but I, I don't think it's going to be a super quick return to normal. You know, Andy, you mentioned uh, at the beginning of this podcast, Almost Famous, one of, in one of my favorite movies, for you being a person who has, has had a career in the music industry for this long period of time and seen a lot of things and written a lot of stories. And what is one that stands out to you, whether it be the craziest story you've ever heard, been with uh, an artist or some crazy shit that you just couldn't believe happened in front of your eyes? Is there something that stands out in terms of your career that you've seen? You know what? I mean, the, the, it's a great question. And there's nothing, I would say that there's nothing that really specifically jumps out i think holistically being at fader and seeing artists like kendrick lamar and travis scott and drake and and justin vernon you know bonnevere um come up to the office when no one really knew who the hell these guys were you know i think 16 years of that right like we had a program with vitamin water for a bunch of years called uncapped. And, you know, we had Travis Scott perform for 30 people in a federal credit union in the East village where, you know, it was just an unbelievable experience. I mean, a after the show, he was so, you know, pumped up. He literally jumped on top of my shoulders, you know, like, you know, and I could barely even like catch him and like withhold him with my terrible posture, you know, um, you know, so, uh, I think those are the moments for me, like having Kendrick Lamar sitting on the couch in my, in my office, you know, um, and finding out from a friend in LA that Kendrick was a big fan of Fader and just wanted to know if he knew anyone there. And, and a friend of mine who worked at Interscope said, you should go 
to New York, you know, and, and meet Andy. And he came with, with Dave Free, who was his manager at the time. And, you know, just getting to like see these people in their nascent stages, um, you know, I think has was those are the stories that, you know, really stick out to me and watching the trajectory, seeing them then go, you know, onto the cover of the magazine and then seeing them, you know, go all the way to headlining, you know, Coachella to now look at Travis Scott. He's a, a cultural icon, you know, with his own McDonald's, you know, uh, menu package, you know, so I think, I think, I think that's been the real fun in my career has been really working with, you know, artists like that, like Chance the Rapper, you know, someone who, you know, we supported really early on. And, you know, I mean, a moment that was probably one of the, the best moments, you know, I've ever had is, you know, my my wife passed away four years ago. And, and the first time I went out after she passed away was to the Meadows Festival, which was the governor's balls, uh, governor's ball. Uh, man, we're getting manscaped. manscaped. <laughs> Offer code doing 20, 20% yeah, off. 20% off for all your friends. Um, so, you know, after he, he was the uh, direct support for Kanye West that night, you know, and he came off the stage and I was standing on like this side ramp, you know, and he did a double take and he knew about my wife passing away and he saw me, you know, in a full sweat after what was an unbelievable performance, you know, and just came over and like told me, loved me and gave me a hug and, you know, and his manager was, you know, hugging me and, you know, th- like those moments, like, were you know were really not to sound corny were really special to me because you know I was you know I felt like they really recognized you know the role that we and, it, and trust me this was not just me you know I was the, I was the both fortunate and unfortunate head of you know of Fader so you know I was the one who was the forward facing person and and the one that you know had a lot of interaction with these artists so um, you know those are the moments that stick out when you when you then get to watch you know, all of these, you know, amazing artists like Blossom, you know, down the road and, and knowing that we had Jack White, you know, and Pharrell Williams on the cover when, you know, nobody could have possibly known who they were or really, to be honest, cared. And I think we built something in Fader as a brand that, you know, made them care. I was going to ask you, but I think you just answered it. I mean, did you feel that during your time at Fader or you've sort of felt that after having a little bit of time to reflect? I think having time to reflect, you know, has really given me a lot more, you know, perspective. And look, my time there, I always felt so blessed and lucky, like every day that that job lasted, you know, Um, and I really did. And I think now, you know, having about like being about 10 months removed and really looking back on all the amazing moments at the events that we had, the moments in the office, you know, the different interactions with artists from all around the world, you know, and having the Fader Fort as our flagship event at South by Southwest. And, you know, the moments that we shared backstage, you know, I had for, for my 40th birthday, my wife threw a surprise party, birthday party for me at the Fader Fort in Austin. And they made a video for me that had like, you know, artists at the time that nobody knew, but it was SZA and Sam Smith and Travis Scott and Schoolboy Q and, you know, all of these amazing artists, like just saying happy for you know, young thug, you know, like saying happy birthday, you know, to me. And, um, you know, those things are really special to me that I'll always cherish. And then even when my wife passed away, artists like, 
Casey Musgraves and, and Vince Staples and Tory Lanes, they all made a video and Chance the Rapper, Wiz Khalifa, they strung it together for my kids. Um, you know, all telling personal stories, you know, uh, Tory Lanes talking about how he lost his mother when he was nine years old, you know, to my son and, and daughter, you know, on video. Uh, Vince Staples talking about how much he loved, you know, me and, and my wife, you know, and, and getting to know us over the years, um, you know, was really meaningful. And, and those things are, you know, really special and, and that I look back on, you know, very, very fondly and feel very blessed and, and lucky to have had that, you know, that career path. Did, did you get a chance to check out any of these uh, battles on Instagram and whatnot? And what's your thoughts on those? I have to think given the artist who you don't normally see in, in the spotlight uh, these days, it may actually stick. What's your, what's your thoughts been on that? No, I think they're great. You know, I think they were really great, especially at the beginning. I think the versus battle has really stood the test of time and has become like a really fun thing. Um, you know, I don't think the live experience on social platforms, you know, outside of YouTube are, are really that great. I don't think Instagram TV, you know, I think the audio and video quality is just not up to par to keep an audience stuck. I think they were very novel, you know, the bedroom sessions and, you know, the home DJ sets for the first few weeks of the pandemic. I think those were, you know, really interesting. Um, but then quickly became very not interesting. And we noticed, uh, the company I'm working with right now, you know, we noticed the watch times just really dove down. Um, I think, People just expect a higher level of quality, you know, in order to really stick and watch something, um, you know, and I think that's something that, you know, in the transition to working for a live streaming company now, I've really realized that it's such a, a huge growth area. Obviously, the pandemic accelerated it, um, but, you know, you have, you know, uh, according to, I think it was like daily esports is like a 99% growth in live streaming, um, the live streaming industry over as a whole, just from April 19 to April 2020. Um, you know, so I think you have had all these phases that we've been through with social media, with mobile, you know, uh, back to a little bit further back with blogs and, and sites. And, you know, I think people now, that, you know, video has become, you know, the number one consumed media on the internet and people would just rather watch video, whether live or if it's VOD, you know, than read blog posts. And and I saw that, you know, with experience just watching, you know, watch, uh, time on site, you know, for articles, you know, and especially long form. Um, and it's a shame because I believe in long form journalism. I really do. Um, I think it's, it's a lost art and we've catered to the ADD generation. (laughs) I'm not going to source this, but someone told me that the average human attention span was nine seconds, like a year ago. And it's now down to five seconds, which is less than a, less than a goldfish. Wait, what did you just say? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Sorry. sorry, Who are you guys? What happened? I forgot. What am I doing here? Wait, did I manscape today? 20% off doing 20. Yeah. 
Um, no, I, I, so I, so I do think that live stream adoption is like one of the next things. And even post COVID, I think you're going to see live streaming as part of a media mix for a lot of brands. I think, you know, as brands continue to follow the Red Bull model of becoming publishers themselves, they're less reliant on partnerships, you know, with music media and traditional media. Um, I think they're more willing to look towards experts to help create compelling content but also the key is then to market that content you know and get eyeballs on the content because someone told me recently that 70 percent of content that brands are, are creating doesn't even get out there or seen you know so i think live is a way of of you know tune in moments is a way of cutting through the clutter i think you know one of the things we believe in at like first tube is creating things episodically so that you can really compound an audience and, you know, create something like we're doing a program with Tito's where it's four regional live streams where each one celebrates the North, the South, the East and the West. And there's three artists from each region, um, a, a DJ opener, um, a direct support act, and then a live and then a headliner um, all shot with drones and multiple cameras in like remote locations like Portugal, the man shot at the baseline of the Timberline lounge at Mount hood, where the shining was filmed. Um, we just shot, uh, summer Walker in the woods of the Hollywood Hills. Um, we, we were shooting, um, we shot Dirks Bentley in Telluride, you know, at a ski lodge. So I think you're, you're starting to also see the quality of some of these live streams really, you know, uh, increase. And I think those you're seeing longer watch times. And then again, I think when events come back, there's still going to be a place, you know, for live streams for people who can't make it to these events. And and that's what first got me interested in live streaming and, and you know, these kind of brand owned digital moments is, you know, the struggle to find media partnerships and find brands that are willing to you know, share voice with a media partner versus own it themselves. And I think a lot of people have looked at the Red Bull model and really have, have begun to, you know, see that it works and, and really try to adopt it for their own. Yep. What's, um, I think I know this, but in closing, what's your favorite rap album of all time? Mm -hmm. um, it's probably uh, Ready to Die by Biggie. Oh, yeah. I just think it's one of the most, honest and well-told story albums of all time. You know, I'm a big Tupac fan as well. Um, I don't know that from a holistic album standpoint, I could put anything up against ready to die, but, I'm with you. but I think Tupac individuals, like his individual songs, like some of them are some of the most incredibly lyrically poetic you know, albums, uh, uh, sorry, records ever written, um, you know, and, and not to sound like the old guy in the room, but you With know, a bunch of old guys in the room. So don't worry about it, <laughs> you know? Um, but I think, you know, progressively into more of like current culture, you look at artists like Kendrick Lamar, I think is someone who can really hold up, you know, to that standard. Um, someone who's so precious about, you know, their music and, you know, so careful with everything that they put out. And, you know, I really respect that, 
versus him just being one of these SoundCloud rappers that's just pumping out song after song after song after song. You know, I'd rather see him go, you know, a couple of years and work on something incredible, you know, and groundbreaking. Um, and then, you know, whether you want to take him or leave him, you know, Mr. Kanye West, you know, is also another artist who's really, I think, carried that torch and, and pushed music forward for better or worse. You know, I think he's been so inventive with it, with his whole persona and with his actual sound. Um, you know, he's not an artist that just puts out another rap album every couple of years. You know, he's really doing things that are sonically, you know, pushing the envelope and innovative and interesting. Um, and say what you want about his politics aside, uh, you know, I'm judging him musically and culturally. Fair enough. No, I think, we're, I mean, I, I agree with you on both Biggie and Tupac. Like I loved Ready to Die really feels like a, a, a story all the way through. Yep. And I think with Tupac, his, his stuff is like, you know, you got changes, you got uh, Me Against the World. You could listen to those, but like as an album as a whole, you don't. I don't feel like you'd sit and listen to those. Um, no, no I think I think you're right. I think Ready to Die was like a book. Yes, you know, like a like a book from beginning to end. Yeah, but I will I will say I think Changes is probably my favorite rap song of all time, and very relevant today too. I mean, that's the thing about it. Like the it gives me the chills to listen to that at almost any point over the past bunch of years. You know. For sure. Um, you know, you talk about, you know, I don't, I'm not a religious person. I don't believe in prophets, you know, but you, you look at how prophetic he was, you know, and how ahead of his time, you know, with his, with his writing, you know, I know they had a, I don't know if they still have it, but Berkeley, uh, school of music, you know, taught a class. Um, it was, I believe called the lyrics of Tupac Shakur, you know, I mean, um, that says something. Where can people find you to connect with you? Anything you want to plug? Um, you know, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm um, easy to find on Instagram. It's just Andy Cohn. Um, always welcome to ideas and, you know, people uh, connecting with people. I love, I love connecting with people who are passionate about music. Um, you know, and, and right now my main focus has really been, uh, you know, working with First Tube, which is, you know, again, the live streaming company and, and doing some really interesting things, trying to support, not just support emerging artists and artists in general during a time of need, but also having a social impact layer to pretty much every program that we do. Like for Tito's, we're, we're um, Tito's put up $100,000 and then we're matching donations for World Central Kitchen which is pivoted. Um, and one of the, one of their funds, uh, that they work with is frontline foods, which is supporting black owned and operated restaurants, which is very authentic, you know, to Tito's and their, and their business. Um, and I think continuing to champion diversity, you know, in, in both sides of music, you know, in, in the hiring side on um, the industry, you know, as well as, you know, booking artists for programs and making sure that, you know, there's great cross genre representation, male, female, you know, different genres, um, I think is, is just, you know, really important at this time in the world that we're at. Well, look, I always appreciate our talks. I'm super glad we were able to hit record on this one and yeah, uh, no, really thank do. You. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thanks so much. This was great. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, 
this was awesome and uh good luck with uh whoever's next because they have no chance you know to come up against me support for the we need to be doing that podcast is brought to you by manscaped the best in men's below the waist grooming manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels i always call them that they obsess over their technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience get 20 percent off and free shipping with the code doing 20 at manscaped.com that's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Make sure to use the code DOING20. That's a wrap for this week. Thanks for listening to the We Need to Be Doing That podcast. Visit we need to be doing that.com for more episodes and contact information. 